Amen. Grab a seat. As Aaron said, my name is Daniel. I am one of the uh, pastors and elders here at Aletheia Church, and it's good to see everyone uh, this morning. So I'm going to begin by uh, showing you an image up here on the screen, and in case you aren't familiar with this image, this image is an image of our Milky Way galaxy. And in case you didn't know, it is 100,000 light years from one edge of the Milky Way galaxy all the way to the other edge of the Milky Way galaxy. So to help you gain a little bit of perspective of just how far that is, I'm going to give you a, a brief a recap of a science lesson you've probably learned at some point in time along the way. Um, we know and we have been taught that light travels at the speed of 186,000 miles per second. That means in one hour, light travels 671 million miles. In one day, light travels 16.1 billion miles. And in one year, a beam of light, a particle of light, travels 5.8 trillion miles. We're getting into federal deficit territory now. As I told you, the Milky Way is 100,000 light years across. That comes to a grand total of 588 quadrillion miles. So if you were to get in your car and you were to drive at the rate of 60 miles per hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every day of the year, it would only take you 1.12 trillion years to drive across the Milky Way galaxy. Now, let me show you this next picture up here. This picture right here uh, that's coming up, supposedly, there it is. This is the newest picture from the James Webb Space Telescope. Have you guys seen this stuff? If you have not seen this, you need to get online. You need to go to the James Webb Space Telescope. It puts Hubble to shame. You know, it's like how I used to watch TV back in the old day in a little square box, and now we have like 8K TVs. It is amazing how much it has changed. Well, this picture right here, uh, just this photo, every little uh, speck of light you see is a galaxy itself. So there are over 1,000 galaxies in this photo right here. Now, Here's something I would like you to do uh, sometime later today, sometime later this week. I want you to go somewhere and find this abundant thing called sand that we have here in the state of Florida, right? And I want you to get one grain of sand, and I want you to do your best to try, try and find the biggest, largest expanse of sky you can find. I know it's a little hard here because everything's flat. We have these big, huge trees. It's really kind of hard to get that really big open area where you can see the sky from end to end. But I want you to take a grain of sand. I want you to pick it up just like this and either look up uh, if you can, if you're still young enough to do that. If you're old enough like me, it helps to lay on your back so you can get this perspective and look up. Look up at the sky. Hold that one speck that little grain of sand in your fingers like this and realize this photo you're seeing right here is the equivalent of how much space that one grain of sand takes up in the entire expanse of the sky that you can see. That's how big the universe is that our God 
has created. So when the psalmist today says we're going to be talking about the unsearchable greatness of God, this is just one aspect that we can dwell on, one aspect that we can think about of just how big God is. And so today, my, my goal is to take you through this journey, just thinking about how big and how great God is. And this is an exercise that if you don't participate in regularly, I would encourage you to do so. Because I think one of the, the greatest failings of humanity, one, one of the hardest things to do in our life is to remember how big God is and how small we are. And, and so many of the issues in the world today are practically because as we as Christians, when we face things in the world, our God is way too small and man is way too big. Well, when we go to tackle things, when we go to attempt things, our God is way too small and we are way too big. So to gather and to garner a proper perspective of just the grandeur, the, the grandioseness of God, just how great he is, it is helpful for us to, on occasion, just sit down and remember and think about how big God is. In the opening line of his famous book, Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer pins this line. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I don't know if you've ever heard this line. I don't know if you've ever given any thought to this line. But this is one of those profound statements that a man is saying, the most important thing about you is what you think about God. Whatever comes into your mind when you think about him. And I think Tozer is on to something. Now, I'm just going to say today's sermon is a straight hijack of this book, all right? Um, this is a book I would encourage every single person to put in their library. Um, it's 117 pages. It has 23 chapters, so it's about five pages per chapter, all right? But the profundity of the words in each and every chapter of this book are beyond what most of us normally read. But it's not a hard read, but yet it's a thought-provoking read. And so I would just encourage you, even if you don't pick it up today, because over the last month, I've just been slowly working my way back through this book, and it has had a profound impact on my life as I just consider the greatness of God over and over and over, and just who this God is that we worship, who this God is who has created our universe, who gives us life and breath of being. But, but I want you to know my, my goal today in today's sermon is I, I'm not trying to move so much where I give you some things, I tell you this is what Scripture says, and then here's all the things you can act now can do and should do in light of what Scripture says. My, my goal today is to kind of keep you in a, in a meditative state today and throughout the week. You'll notice even the song set. We didn't have all the instruments up there today. It was a very kind of meditative, reflective set because I wanted to put you into this space that I want you to think about the grandeur of God. And I want that to inspire you and to motivate you as you go out and you live your lives this week and into the coming years. 
The scripture tells us, I will extol you, my God and my King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. The, the psalmist is telling us that he can't help but praise God. He can't help but talk about God. That he does this over and over and over because as he thinks about the spectacular nature of God and who God is and all of his being, it just bursts forth in, in who he is. He cannot help himself but talk about God. And this is one of those things that should be cognizant in our mind is like how often do we find ourselves just bursting forth in praise about God and one of the reasons we may not find ourselves doing that as often as we like is because our picture of God is not big enough because we don't think about God enough we get distracted by all of these things in our daily lives but when we think about God and we we try to capture his nature. When we search his unsearchable greatness, we can't help but pour forth praise. My goal is that in my prayer, the thing that I have prayed for the last month over this sermon is that, that when we leave here today, that the Holy Spirit would move us closer to what Frederick Faber once penned. Only to sit and think of God, oh, what a joy it is to think the thought, to breathe the name, earth has no higher bliss. Church, my prayer for you for the last month is that God would do something in our hearts today that would move us closer to this place, that when we think about God, there would be no higher bliss that we could imagine. So the first thing that we're going to talk about today and to try to expand our understanding, to just, just expand our idea and to put you in this place of how big and how great God is, is we're going to talk about his self-existence. God is self-existence. This means that God has no origin. Origin is a word that can only apply to things created. When we think of anything that has origin, we are not thinking of God. God is self-existent. While all created things necessarily originated somewhere at some time, aside from God, nothing is self-caused. Everything was made by someone who was made of none. Have you ever tried to ponder that? Have you ever just sat and just like, how is it that God has just always existed? Now, now, some of you people who have the more philosophical bent to your mind, like you want to run down the rabbit trail and think about this and ponder this and mull it over and over and over and over again. I usually get about 10 seconds into this exercise and I'm like, this is way too big. This is way too hard. What's next on the agenda that I can learn about God, right? Because it, I mean, it actually is, a, it, it, it is, I'll use this word in its classical sense. It is an awful and terrible experience to imagine a God who is self-existent. To imagine there is this being who is unaccountable to no one and to no thing except himself. 
In his book, Tozer says this. He says, the human mind being created has an understandable uneasiness about the uncreated God. We do not find it comfortable to allow for the presence of one who is completely outside of the realm of our familiar knowledge. We tend to get disturbed by the thought of one who does not account to us for his being who is responsible to no one, who is self-existent, self-dependent, and self-sufficient. The reality, this reality, is the reason that the most common of men to the highest and most gifted scientist and philosopher struggles with the concept of God. It is one thing to admit that there is much you do not know, but it is quite another thing to admit there is something you can never know and have no technique for discovering. To grasp and confess that God is everywhere while he is nowhere. To grasp a being that is independent of matter and space is unaffected by time or motion, and is wholly self-dependent and owes nothing to the worlds his hands have made is too much for our minds and our souls to handle. But this is the God that we serve and worship. This is what Paul had in mind when he writes these words in Colossians chapter 1, 16 and 17. For everything was created by him. In heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Our God is not only self-existent, but our God is completely and totally self-sufficient. Nothing is necessary to God. Whatever God is and all that God is, he is in himself. The only thing that God needs is himself. In John 5.26, the apostle pens these words, For just as the Father has life in himself, so also he has granted to the Son to have life in himself. This is what John is getting at in part in this verse. It's saying that God is completely and totally self-sufficient because he actually contains life in his being, that he needs nothing except himself. But if you and I were to sit down, we could actually make a list as long as the 588 quadrillion miles of all the things that you and I need just to maintain existence upon this planet, to actually remain living and breathing as simply as food, as water, as oxygen, relationships. And then if you break down just, you know, what we need in food, all the minerals and all the chemicals, all the way down to their, you know, their, the electrons, the protons, the neutrons, we need all these things to work together in, in sync with one another just so that you and I can take our very next breath. I mean, we're, we're so weak and frail that a microscopic virus can take us out in a matter of days. A 200-pound being such as myself being absolutely crushed and destroyed by something naked to the human eye. We need everything to go right all the time to live life. God needs 
absolutely nothing. And that includes us. God does not need us, nor does he need our help. Though he calls us to participate in the building of his kingdom, he does not need us. He has a voluntary relation to everything that he has made. But he has no necessary relation to anything outside of himself. God's interest in us and all of his creation arises from his sovereign good pleasure, not from any need that we can supply. But you got to think about this. The fact is he does not need us. But the fact is he chooses to love us. I mean, this should begin to actually take personal application to you. That God does not need you in any way, yet the Lord your God actually chooses of his own volitional will to pursue you, to come after you, and to say, you are mine. You are my child. I don't need you in any way, but I want to have a relationship with you. I want to bring you into my covenant. I want to bring you into my kingdom. I want to bring you into my glory. And I want to pour out my unsearchable riches upon you forever and ever and ever and ever. This is the unsearchable greatness of God. Speaking of forever and ever, the eternity of God. I want you to think with me for a moment about time. Time marks the beginning of a created existence. And because God never began to exist, time can have no application to him. Began as a time word, and it can have no personal meaning for the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity. God lives in an everlasting now. He has no past, and he has no future. When time words occur in Scripture, they refer to our time, not to his. When the four living creatures before the throne cry day and night, Holy, holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come, they are identifying God with the flow of creature life, with its familiar three tenses. And this is right and good, for God is sovereignly willed so to identify himself. But since God is uncreated, he is not himself affected by that succession of consecutive changes we call time. God dwells in eternity but time dwells in God. And I want you to, to, to think about this because this is really important for the daily life, the daily moments of our lives. If you look at this line up here across the screen, you, will, you, you can imagine at some point over here on the left side, this is when time began. And, and right now, you know, we're, we're somewhere along this line, but this line will just continue to get longer and longer and longer and longer and longer and longer and longer. But what you must also recognize and realize is this, the, the, the vast blackness around that line. Just imagine for a moment that it is God. Because that is how God exists in time. God exists outside of time, but yet God exists directly in time. 
But, but here's what you also need to see from a perspective standpoint. Look at this next line. No matter how big that line gets, no matter how long that line goes on, in the grand perspective of thing, this line actually never gets any longer to God. It moves along in successive moments for us, but for God, it never gets any longer because no matter how long that thing goes, God being infinite and eternal, God is always outside of this thing that we experience called time. But yet in this, we should take incredible comfort because God has already lived all our tomorrows just as he has lived all of our yesterdays. When we say that God knows all things, that God can tell you what's going to happen before it happens, you want to know why? Because every moment is the present for God. God doesn't have to look into the future because there actually is no future for God. Every moment that exists. So 10,000 years from now, when we are sitting in eternity with the Lord our God, that moment is just as present to him right now as it is to you and me sitting right here. The moment that happened 5,000 years ago is just as present to God right now as it was to those who lived in the day. Every moment is present for God. And that's why he can make statements like he does in Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. See, church, when he calls you to be a part of his family, when God, though not needing you, decides to enter into a voluntary relationship with you and to adopt you and to make you his own child, there now becomes a greater purpose for your life. There now becomes a kingdom purpose for your life that you are to live out all of your days until God calls you home. God calls you to be a part of his kingdom so that he can accomplish his purposes through you. This is the life that we are called to live as followers of Jesus. And as God, this eternal God, who is self-existent, who is self-sufficient, and who is eternal, another incredible, awe-inspiring thing but yet totally unimaginable thing is that this God is immutable. Now, this is one of those fancy theological words that we don't use in our everyday life. But I'm thankful to the X-Men movie series because they have brought this term mutant into the forefront. And I know there's lots of scientists in here who deal with mutations all the time. And so basically, this is the fancy theological word to say that God never changes. He is immutable. And just think about this. If God were to ever change, it would mean that he is a moral being 
would go from better to worse or from worse to better. Another area of change involves going from immature to mature. God does not grow, nor does he advance in age. And, I, and I, I'm going to speak to you about this point, because uh, I, I, this is something I, I want us all to change, because I know we do it because of all these pictures we see out in the world. We, we imagine God as this old guy in the sky, right? It, it's just like, if you imagine God as old, you have a completely wrong image of God. God is not old. God, in fact, is eternally young. And the best example I've ever heard of this was by a man named G.K. Chesterton. And he was speaking to this direct point. And he said, Christians mess this up all the time. He goes, and the reason I know they mess this up is because God has given us this image in life. He goes, have you ever seen a child playing with one of their parents? And they sit down and they come to that age to where they just want you to do the same thing over and over and over again. And so they will sit there. Again, I got four kids, so I've been through this, you know, four times. Very clearly as an image in my mind, right? You sit down, they learn how to get a ball. They got enough dexterity that they can motor skills, they can roll the ball. And you roll the kid the ball. And they roll it back to you. And after like one minute in your advanced age and your tiredness, you're done, Right? What happens when you think you try to be done? Do it again, daddy. 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 And then you do it for like 20 minutes and you get up again and they scream and cry until you come back and you do it again, daddy. And you do it again, daddy. And you do it again, daddy. Chesterton, Chesterton says, it's this illustration that shows us that God is eternally young. For how many years has that same God said to the son, do it again. To watch the sun rise, do it again. To watch the sun set, do it again. And he never gets tired of it. He is forever joyful and enthralled and enamored at this creation, which scientists now tells us contains at least 100 billion galaxies, each containing at least 100 billion stars. And God gets just as much joy today as when he spoke it into existence. And he will forever and ever. Because God is immutable. God does not change. God is forever young. That's why heaven is going to be a glorious place because it is going to be ruled by a God who is forever young and wants to see his children experience his riches and his kindness forevermore. God does not, God, um, God does not change from one type of being to another. His perfections rule out any such possibility. And so far, we've seen that God is self-existent, he's self-sufficient, and he's eternal. He is not some other being. He doesn't change in the slightest degree whatsoever. And this immut immutability of God appears in its most perfect beauty when it's viewed against how mutable we are. In God, no change is possible. In men, Change is possible. 
I mean, what, what might come as a shock to, to many of you in the room today is that 20 years ago, I looked just like you. This stuff, this white stuff that's appeared over time, it used to not be there. But over time, the gray has appeared. Over time, my back hurts when I get up in the morning just because I'm 46 years old. And one day, very soon, probably too far out for you to imagine, you're going to wake up. And this is how you're going to know you're old and young people. It's when you've injured yourself in your sleep. That's right. You're going to wake up and you're going to go, oh, this thing hurts. And it didn't hurt when I went to bed last night. At that point, you have officially crossed the threshold into being an old person. I don't care what anybody tells you. But, you, I mean, just think about your whole life. You change. You, from, from the moment sperm and egg meet, right? Like, there's this change going on, and you change in form. You change, change, change. You come into the world. You change, 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 change. And at about 25, somewhere around there, you, are, you go from growing, and you immediately tip the scale, and you start moving toward death because your body no longer grows. We never stop changing. But God has never changed one iota. Not one little bit. And where you should take encouragement, and this is where, like, I really wish we weren't so much Baptist and we were a little bit more Pentecostal. Because, like, at some point, like at this point, like, Something should be welling up in your soul if I've done even a decent job of communicating this this morning to where you're just like going, amen, hallelujah, you know, preach it more, Daniel, come on, let's do this all day because this is amazing stuff we are thinking about God to where you just want to spontaneously burst out in praise because this thing about change, that God never changes, this, what this tells you and me is that his love for you and I never changes. No matter how much of a temper tantrum throwing toddler we can be at times in our life, no matter how obstinate, no matter how far we might decide to run at times, this God who has entered into a voluntary relationship with you and has said, you are my child, no matter on your good day, on your, on your, on your worst day, God's love for you never changes in any way, shape, or form. And you are all way too Baptist. I mean, come on. Like, I mean, that should do something, right? All right. All right. Thank you. One, one person has gotten the whole thing about Psalm 145. He's like, the dude, the dude says, I can't help but praise God and extol his praises when I think about his unsearchable greatness. And we get one preacher brother. We got a long way to go. I love you. We got a long way to go. All right. Not only is God self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal, and immutable, God is also omniscient. This simply means that God knows everything. It is to say that he possesses perfect knowledge and therefore has no need to learn. But it is more. I mean, this blew me away. It is to say that God has never learned and cannot learn. 
So if someone, said, if someone ever asked you, is there something God cannot do? You now have a list. He can't change. He can't learn. Now, just sit and ponder that for a moment. God knows everything. There's never a moment in time where God goes, oh, you know, I hadn't thought of that before. But think of our lives. Every day is spent learning. You could take all the knowledge in this room and God would laugh at it. All the knowledge at the University of Florida. God would scoff at it. You take what exists in our country, in the world of 8 billion people, and literally the knowledge that we possess is the exact same size as the earth in comparison to the entire universe. And God knows it all immediately, instantly. God perfectly knows himself. And being the source of all things, it follows that he knows all that can be known. And this he knows instantly. And with the fullness of perfection that includes every possible item of knowledge concerning everything that exists or could have existed anywhere in the universe at any time in the past or that may exist in the centuries or ages to come. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and matters. All mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling, all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven, and hell. And this should result in terror and in fascination for every one of us. Terror when we think that we can actually hide something from God. Fascination for the one who realizes they are fully known and fully loved by God. See, one of the great lies the enemy tells us is that we can actually hide from God. And we see in the garden, the very first sin, Adam and Eve, what did they do? They ran and they hid from God. And God went and found them. And I say this to you that if you are in here today and you are trying to hide something from God, number one, he already knows. And number two, he says he will bring all things into the light. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36 and 37, that each and every one of us is going to give an account personally to him for every single word that we uttered in this life. That is a line I don't, do not look forward to standing in in heaven one day. God knows it all. 
So if you're running from God, if you're trying to hide from God, if you're trying to keep something from God, keep something from the people in your life, Today, right now, in this moment, is your opportunity to drive that stake in the ground and to stop. And to say, I will not hide anymore. I will not run anymore. I will confess my sin. I will acknowledge my sin. I will confess my sin. And I will repent of my sin. And you can do that today. And you can do that knowing that on on the other side of that, there's There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You you, got to understand, I mean, this is crazy. I mean, the fact, I mean, if you ever just kind of sat and pondered this, that God fully knows you and fully loves you, man, that's a lot of love. Because you know who you are. You know the things that you've done. And the fact that God loves you in spite of all that, man, that's the unsearchable greatness of God. And you've got to realize that, that when you go out into the world and when you engage with people, when you're talking about the gospel with people, that, that, that this is the thing, right? You need to know the deepest desire of every human heart is this, to be fully known and fully loved. This is, you, want, you want to know what makes a marriage a good marriage? It's this right here. Two people who are fully known to one another and fully love one another in spite of knowing one another. It's all great in the the front end when all those chemicals are getting released in the brain and the electric, you know, shock therapy is going through your brain and you can't think of nothing and you're all goo-goo-eyed at one another. But when you put two sinners in the same house with one another and say, all right, let's see how this goes over the next 50 years. Once you start fully knowing this person and it's like, oh, I didn't know he smelled like that. Oh, I didn't know she cooked like that, right? I mean, I mean, like, I mean, you start doing all these things and you're like, I- I'm going to choose to love this person anyway, in spite of this thing that I thought was really cute when we first met that just now annoys the ever living heck out of me, right? And, and to know that no matter what you do, God fully knows you. And remember, he, he didn't just know you up to the point that he saved you, right? Because he exists on this timeline, because he exists outside of all this time. He knew you from, David says, before you were ever formed in the womb. And he knows you throughout all of eternity. So he sees it all. None of it surprises him. None of it shocks him. He's like, he knows it all. And he says, I still choose to fully love you with all the power that created this world and rose Jesus from the dead. And right then, everybody should have said, Amen. all right, thank you. All right. You, won't, you will not, let me say, I have four kids. You will not bother me at all if you spontaneously erupt in loud noise and praise, okay? You, you have permission for the rest of the time God allows me to be here and to preach to you. Isaiah 54.10, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. In case you don't know what that word compassion is, um, there is a story in the Gospels where 
Jesus looks out upon the people on the hillside who have been following him. He says, and he says, I, I have compassion on them. And the, the, the Greek word literally means there the turning of the guts. That Jesus, God himself, felt something eternally in the deepest part of his physical nature when he saw these people and had compassion upon them. You need to know that is how God feels toward you and me as his children. The last thing, the last point that we will cover today is the omnipotence of God. This is to say that, omnip- that God is all-powerful, right? Sovereignty and omnipotence must go together. One cannot exist without the other. To reign and to rule the cosmos, God must have power and reign sovereignly. He must have all power. When the Bible uses this word, almighty, when it talks about almighty God, it is telling you there is a God who has all power and who has all sovereignty to rule and to reign over the cosmos. And the Bible tells us that he demonstrates this power to us every time we step outside of our doors, even even inside of our, our houses where we see created things, but outside in nature, he says, for his invisible attributes, all these things we've talked about today, God says, Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. God, the self-existent creator, is the source of all the power there is. And we know this from from the moment we plug in any electrical device into an outlet. We know that the source of power must be at least equal to the power that there is coming out of that. So when you think about the power of God, and you think about all the power and the energy in the universe and what it takes for billions of galaxies to stay in orbit, to stay moving, to stay constant, to stay stay consistent. Because science tells us if anything ever got out of whack, even for the slightest millisecond, the whole thing would just suck in upon itself or just explode in an absolute disaster. And all of that is maintained, Scripture tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, that it is maintained by the word that God spoke however long ago. That word that God spoke at the beginning is so powerful that it maintains all the energy in the cosmos forever. That is how powerful our God is. So doesn't it seem kind of silly sometimes the way we pray? And we think, can God really do this? Don't those prayers seem a little silly now? 
don't you feel just a little embarrassment of going like, man, my prayers are just too weak. My prayers are just too soft. My, my, my prayers aren't expecting enough, right? When, when Paul prays in Ephesians that God answers our prayers beyond all of our imagination and expectations, he's like, yeah, because look at the God I'm praying to. I mean, look at how big and great and awesome and mighty this God is. And even the apostle Paul's like, my prayers, just they're just so weak. No matter all the words I say, no matter how many I try to lift up and how many I try to craft with, with all the different thesauruses, you know, the world has to offer. I could never get words that are descriptive enough or large enough or big enough to, to, to grasp the power of this God who was and is and is to come. This God who is holy, holy, holy. And church, here's where this really matters. It really matters on the day tragedy strikes you or someone close to you. So you, you, you got to take, and this is why, you know, when Tozer said, you know, what, we think, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This is why this stuff is important. This is why thinking big things about God is really important. Because on the day, like for example, my, my mentor and business partner just got told on Friday that his wife has cancer. That day's coming for you. It's coming for your spouse. It's coming for your kids. These moments are going to come into your life. And if you don't think about God and know this God who exists in the Bible, this has the potential to utterly devastate you and then to altogether put God in some category saying, why weren't you there? Why didn't you do this thing that I wanted you to do? But God was always there. And God knew this moment was coming before you were even born into the world. But that's why you've got to know this God and you've got to know scriptures like Romans 8, 28 through 30, where it tells us that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he call, whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Because you, you have to understand this. When God called you, he didn't call you to give you your best life now. God's purpose for your life if anybody ever asks you, it's one simple thing from this verse. To conform you to the image of Jesus. That is his purpose for your life. I do not know what means or instruments he will use to conform you to the image of Jesus. But tragic circumstances are many times 
actually, if you've been paying attention, all times or according to his purpose to conform you to the image of Jesus. But see, if you don't believe that there's a God who is self-existent, who rules and reigns over the universe, if you don't believe that there is a God who, who fully knows you and fully loves you, if you don't believe that there is a God who is working all this together for your good and for his glory, this is the exact thing that can drive you away from the faith and send you into a tailspin. Because the enemy will come to you and he will go, oh, because you did this thing, God did this thing to you. That's just a lie from the devil. That thing may have happened to you because you did do something stupid. You may have gotten behind the wheel of a car drunk and crashed it. That's on you. But yet, you may try to be the healthiest person in the whole world and never eat anything bad and still get cancer. God doesn't love you any less. But the question is, do you trust him enough to let him use that cancer for good in this world? Do you trust him enough to allow it to conform you to the image of Jesus? We all want a six-figure income. We all want a big house. We all want a second house on the beach, right? We want it all. We want the nice car. We want the nice family. We want the nice kids. We want the nice school. We want the nice neighborhood. We want everything to go good, smooth, great, and wonderful in this life. You just got to let that dream die. And it's a hard dream to let die. Because when reality hits... that those things are great and wonderful and God promises blessings for obedience right there in Deuteronomy 28. There are some times when he brings things into your life simply to conform you to the image of Jesus. Jesus.